Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Today's guest is on a mission to help leaders unite organizations, deliver superior results, earn ethical reputations, and adapt to change. He graduated from the University of Texas School of Law and spent his first part of his career in the organizational emergency room. As a trial lawyer representing aggrieved employees, he began the practical study of organizational mistakes and dysfunctions. He then went into counseling, psychology, and family therapy and took another career shift as a mediator for organizational disputes, which he did for over 15 years. 25 years ago, he shifted his focus from cleaning up organizational problems to promoting organizational health. His book is titled Uniting by Design, the Architecture of Creative Collaboration for Organizations, Teams, and Groups. Please welcome the founder of Uniting by Design, Mark D. Bennett. How are you doing, Mark? Gary, it's great to be here, and I'm on a good run in my work. I'm working with a lot of really different organizations these days, and I'm somebody who gets a little bored intellectually if I do the same thing over and over again. So when I can have a real good, healthy mix of very different clients and different kinds of solutions and problems that I'm working with, I'm a happy consultant. Yeah, not only that, but you went from law school to becoming a psychology and family therapist to becoming a mediator to look at organizations that are in dysfunction, then people that are in dysfunction, and then looking at how there's this adversarial thing going on in mediation and taking all of those experiences and saying, okay, we can either look at trying to take care of organizations and people after the fact, or like your book says, Uniting by Design is bringing people together and collaborate. And that's what I want to talk about today is that path that you took, what you learned along that path. And what would you tell young leaders today to focus their time energy on through all of your experiences? What's some advice? You and I have a few years behind us. So you might have some core things that you want to share today with uh, with our audience. Well, one thing that I'd start with, because I think it's a success ingredient in leadership in every sector and at every level of leadership, is that leaders are brokers of learning spaces and learning conversations as a fundamental attribute. So they really know how to open up channels between people. They know how to build bridges across problems and amongst different perspectives. And so I would encourage these young leaders to really study the power of learning conversations, become a real observer of conversational space and an architect of dialogue and how people can be brought together to do extraordinary things. Well, you made two words that are some of my favorites, different perspectives. And I know that in my youth, maybe you did this, but maybe you were smarter than me. But in my youth, I thought my perspective was the right perspective. And with a little bit of wisdom, I realized it's just a perspective. So when you talk about mastering the conversation, it's really mastering the ability to understand someone else's perspective, whether you think it's right or wrong, right? Yes. 
And there's some of these phrases that need to be so fluent in a leader. Tell me more. Mm. Help me see it from your perspective. What don't I know? So these are, you know, the kind of questions and the kind of encouragers that come out of a leader's mouth that really offer us an opportunity to tap those other perspectives and turn them into some kind of collective wisdom and understanding that can really take us somewhere. You know, that reminds me of a question that I read in an HBR article recently that talked about leadership integrity and having this question in our mind when something hits us that, you know, pretty much doesn't make sense. If you say something to me that doesn't make sense, rather than fighting with you about my position, to ask myself the question, if I don't know why you believe what you believe, how do I know I'm wrong or you're right? How do I know? If I don't understand why you believe what you believe, because we often take the position of your perspective, okay, I got that, but I don't go behind the scenes. And I think that's what you're saying is really dig into the conversation and understand the meaning behind what people are saying, not just taking the words at face value. Is that a fair thing? That's right. We treat the perspective where somebody's standing as the bottom line. And what's really important that we need to know is the backstory. How Mm. did they get to that conclusion? And that's where we often can learn a tremendous amount. And one of the things I think it's good for leaders to know how to do is have the humility, even when they think they're absolutely right, like that young leader, Gary McGrath, uh, back in those days, to say, you know, I feel pretty strongly about this. Am I missing anything? Mm, mm, am I, uh, Help me see how you got to a different conclusion. Yeah. So let's let's also uh, put that with context and background. So I can remember I was working for Procter & Gamble and we were working on a Saturday. I'd been there maybe three or four months and we were working an extra shift because it was just a small crew of like a half a dozen people working on a converting line and it's a union plant. So they had very, very specific rules, but I wasn't really... Sure, I knew all the rules at that point, but I knew that we had a job to get done. Now, I was taught that when you got to get, a, when you have a job to get done, you work until the damn thing's done. I mean, I can remember my dad's words, you know, get it done. And we're we're there. We started at six in the morning, and about uh, nine o'clock, this guy says, uh, "I need to go on break." And I'm like, "Yeah, but we're almost done with this part of it. Let's, you know, take a few." He says, "No, I'm I'm going on break." And he hits the red button, turns the machine off, and walks away. And I'm like. What the heck are you just, you just walked away. That's insubordination. You can't do this. You just walked away. Right. And his perspective was, you know, I'm taking a break. Well, and he, you know what, Mark, he was right. According to the contract, if they've worked for three hours, it says they could take a break. And he walked off the line. I was the one that was wrong. And I learned a huge lesson that day by him hitting that red button. I'll never forget it to just to do what, like what you said, Tell me more. Let me understand where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Why do you think you're doing what you're doing right now? He's like, hey, it's in the contract. See you. Uh, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing that I would tell that young leader that you were asking me to advise is for them to never underestimate the power of stories mm. because we learn through stories and stories communicate so much. They animate our understanding. They anchor in people's memories in, in a way that even the most eloquently stated words can can never quite accomplish. So you painted the, vi- the vivid image of the, the red button and the fist going down on the button and the, the flummoxed young executive standing there you know, 
kind of looking with his jaw dropped, kind of trying to figure out what just happened to him. So all that is, uh, those are life lessons. Those are, uh, and they can be life lessons for other people too. And, and, and understand painted by the context of me coming out of the army where, you know, I was a captain, I was in command, I was in charge, blah, 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 right? All that kind of good stuff. And this guy who's like a private, quote unquote, is walking off the line. He doesn't care. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you can't do this. Well, actually he can. So it it taught me a, a huge lesson in transition which a lot of military people have to learn how to go through that transition mm-hmm. and, and, and recognize that context is everything in leadership. Yes. Toto, yeah. you're not in Kansas anymore. You're not in Kansas. So, you know what I, you, you were, you were talking about questions, mm-hmm. which is very powerful in leadership and stories and questions, you know, tell me more. Uh, what don't I know? Um, has there been a time when you asked a question, like, tell me more, you're, you're absolutely sure you're thinking I've got this, you know, and this, this person's kind of a jerk or whatever, or you're, you're, you're not going in the right direction. And you ask the question, tell me more. And what they tell you, like, makes your draw job, draw, makes your jaw drop. I mean, so they tell you something and it makes your jaw drop. And you realize that your perspective or your understanding of that all along was totally wrong. It's happened more than once. <laughs> it's, it certainly has, yes. Where I, my, my left brain arrogance, I was sure I had it all figured out and I wasn't even close. Yeah, yeah. I think anybody that's been in a management position for more than 10 minutes has had that experience, right? That's right. Yeah. So tell me a little bit, why, why did you go from law to psychology and counseling to mediation and now the work that you do. What, talk a little bit about that path and some of the th- some of the thinking that went through that uh, those career shifts. Well, um, I'll tell you a, a short story because the the, the shifting uh, was powered by one of the one of the most significant experiences in my life. My father had been a really uh, hard-charging corporate executive for Frito Lay, and he'd traveled all over the U.S. all the time. And at the age of 52, he developed really severe heart disease and he had to take early retirement. So I was sitting in a critical care unit in a hospital in Omaha, Nebraska, and he just had open heart surgery. And he was lying there and all wired up and on machines and everything. And I was sitting next to his bed and I looked at this man who had a broken heart at the age of 52. And I thought, how could this be? You know, he doesn't have any heart risk factors. Uh, weight or diet or smoking or anything like that. And I came to the conclusion as I was there with him that his work had broken his heart, mm. that the constant stress, you know, the, the, you know, the pressure hit was too much for him. And I realized that I really dislike my work as a trial lawyer, mm. that high pressure, uh, long hours, and I, th- I had this moment of understanding that if I didn't get a work life that fit with my heart, that my heart could break just like the heart of my father. Mm-hmm. And I literally left his bedside. I went back to my law firm in Austin, Texas, and I uh, told them I was quitting the practice of law. And I didn't know quite what I was going to do, but I was fascinated with human beings and psychology and what made people tick. And so I went back to graduate school in psychology. 
So that was that shift. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I, I realized I didn't want to sit in rooms as a therapist with people and excavate all the reasons why things weren't working for them. But mediation came across my radar screen and mediation felt like practical psychology in action bringing people together who are stuck in some kind of a situation and helping them figure out how they're going to navigate out of it in practical terms. And I, I would also think that your your law background helped you a lot in that it, as well, it helped, right? It, it helped me a lot. It was also a way to really integrate and, and really stand on my law law credential in a, in a very different way. So I, I absolutely did that. So that's those were those two navigations. And then I think I sat in one too many mediation session, realizing that I was sitting down stream of people's poor decision-making and bad choices, helping them clean up messes. And I wanted to do something that was more proactive and uh, forward moving. And, mm. and that, that led me out of the, the mediation field into organizational consulting and leadership development and everything else that's come since then. Otherwise known as dysfunctional prevention. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, right. look look for that bumper sticker link. That's that's yeah. what that's what my mission is. So, yeah, and your your book goes into a lot of details uh, on on that on how you go about kind of understanding the process of collaboration, communication, teamwork, organizational effectiveness. Talk a little bit about that. How did how did uh, this there's a lot of stuff in this book. I mean, there's there's a lot of wealth in this book, Uniting by Design. Um, how did you bring all that together? Well, I guess I, I, I've got to tell you one more piece. And, yeah. and, and Gary, this ties back to that question that I've still got in the back of my mind about what would you tell the young leader? Mm. And, and, and to me, the word of power that underlies leadership uh, and it underlies organizational health is the word integrity. Mm-hmm. And it t- integrity ties directly to another word that I know you, you deal with in your work a lot, which is accountability. So um, I have been asking uh, people in my decision-making workshops for the last 20 years or so, what does a leader with integrity look like? And I'm emphasizing the visual there. What can you see that shows you integrity in action? And I've asked that question all over the world. I've asked it in all kinds of organizations and in different cultures, and I get remarkably similar answers no matter where I ask that question, that integrity in a common sense human understanding looks like three things, character, constancy, and consideration. And, and so uh, what, what the right way I got to pulling this all together was I kept working with this word integrity, which I'd already been using in my decision-making and values work, which was my second book. Uh, what is, what, how do you build integrity into a decision-making process? And so I started to migrate that sense of integrity into how do we build integrity throughout the organization? How do we bring the whole organization together? And it was that whole organization thinking that got me to the, the book. I thought, well, it's about uniting. It's not about unity. It's not about being united because it's ongoing. It's always active. It's a verb. It's not a noun. The sense of building in integrity. So, yeah, because United sounds like, okay, we're done here. We're done. Check the box. Right. And we're never done. That's right. We're always uniting. We're always active. Character, constancy, and consideration. When you talk about those, and I I get a feeling of that definition of integrity 
it creates trust. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it comes back to Stephen Covey's beautiful words, you know, uh, uh, about trust being, you know, the, the glue of life. It's what really holds things together. And, uh, and so, yeah, this is all about the fundamental of creating an environment within where people trust their leaders, leaders trust the people who work for them. And there's that speed of trust that Stephen M. R. Covey created a book around, you know, that's what mm-hmm. we get, then we get the speed of trust, we reduce the friction, we liberate the creativity, the candor, the truth telling, you know, the ability to admit and learn from mistakes, all those things begin to break for us. Uh, and then we've really got something. So let, let's fast forward now in the work that you're doing now to go into an organization and uh, have you had some experiences in talking to leaders when you talk about integrity? You know, I'm sure you have this conversation, right? You're talking to a CEO, a president of a company. Let's, let's talk about what this takes, this integrity, this accountability, this, uh, this u- uh, unification of the organization, character, consistency, and consideration. You ever had anybody go, uh, yeah, we could use some of that around here? <laughs> well, usually it doesn't come quite quickly out of their, their mouth that, that, that readily. Not but that fast. Huh? Not that fast. But, but uh, one of the ways I get people to do it is I, I have a little instrument that I use that I've developed that, that looks through the architecture of collaboration. And it's got integrity as one of the three elements uh, in what I call a culture of collaboration. Uh, so... So when I ask people these questions, that's often where they start to fess up because they realize on a one to five scale, they can't rank their answer to this question is strongly agree. They have to say either I don't know, which is a three, or I somewhat disagree that we have this. So right. it's, it's within the answers to those questions that I start to get a little more of the acknowledgement that we've got room for improvement. Well, yeah. And I, I uh, when you work with this level of understanding and it's like, well, so how's your integrity? We're not bad. It's not, it's not bad. It's like a 3.5 out of a five scale. You're like, okay, so when things aren't going well, what do we do with that other 1.5? Right? That's right. Yeah. You want the bank account of trust to be very fully deposited into because you never know when you're going to have to call on that and ask people to, to believe in you or go with you on something. You, you know, that's when you don't want to have the trust bank account be deficient. Yep. Yep. And, and, and again, I'll go back to my, you keep talking about Stephen Covey and I was a seven habits of highly effective people trainer. I was a principal centered leadership trainer in the nineties with the Covey leadership center. And all that stuff is still very relevant in how we interact, how we build relationships and how we, how we lead. Well, I'll tell you, that guy was all signal and very little noise. Uh, when I look back at his work, it's timeless and, uh, he said so many things that are always worth remembering. And uh, one of my favorites that that I I live by is begin with the end in mind. Um, So, uh, and I want to be a values-based person in my life. And and at the end in mind, I always want my integrity to stand full in people's eyes. They may not agree with me. They may not like everything I did, but nobody doubts my integrity. Yeah. And I, we all, the work that we do and beginning with the end of mine is habit two, not that I would know them by heart, but habit <laughs> one is being proactive, but habit two is beginning with the end of, which applies both to the person, the team, the organization. It's looking mm-hmm. into the future and saying, what are we creating? What's our mission? What's our future? And from a personal standpoint, beginning with the end of mine is having a personal mission statement. 
mm-hmm. so that I can have the integrity of holding myself accountable against a standard that I've designed for myself. And mm-hmm. the work that we do, and I know the work that you do, is to be able to help people understand clearly what that is so that they can hold them start by holding themselves accountable before they even think about holding others accountable. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, 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 it's one of the reasons that I value true leadership so much because when a leader has the, a grasp on these fundamental ideas that you've been you've been talking about from the Covey work and from your your work personally and mine, they are an instrument for good and powerful change in a positive way inside the organization. They become the straw that can stir the drink and really make other people better and capacitate things. So so it, it's so important that they have those high standards. And yeah. unfortunately, we've both been in, come in organizations where there are people in leadership positions with the titles, but they're not really leading people. No, in fact, uh, you, I think you, we've talked about this. When I talk to people, I say, have you ever had a bad boss? And most people say yes. And I say, I get rid of them. That's, that's my mission. Now I want to make them into good bosses and into great leaders with compassion and accountability as I opened up and said, that's our mission. But the fact is, is that there are bad bosses out there. And unfortunately they're destructive. They're, they hurt people and I will do whatever I can to help them be better, at least get them to neutral if, if not anything, but to ask them to remove themselves if they have to, because they're just not in a position of adding value to the people around them and to the world. And most of them aren't happy. Most of them hate it. (laughs) They're not good at it. That are bad bosses. Have you ever run into somebody like that? (laughs) I I, I sure have. And another thing that that I I like to talk to my organizational clients about when we think about bosses, we don't want to only think about the C-suite, but we want to think about the first line supervisors. I call them the organizational first responders. There's a lot of stuff that arises in organization when you have a boss at the first line who's got good listening skills, good conflict management and conflict resolution skills, and is willing to face things with problem employees and not just sort of kick the can down the road. You, you, you deal with a lot more health producing effects inside the organization when you take this idea of the good boss down to the first line supervisor and make sure that people are being chosen with that in mind. What kind of both hard skills and soft skills do we need in the people that we want to promote to supervise other people? Yeah, and if they don't have them, which a lot of organizations, especially mid-market and below, are mm-hmm. not training their leaders – Mm-hmm. And they're uh, they're giving them the responsibility of leadership and management without the skills, and unfortunately, it's the employees that suffer. And it's not the it's not the supervisor's fault. We're asking them to do a job we're not training them to do. It'd be like me saying to you, "I want you to to drive a tractor trailer, you know, seventy miles an hour down the interstate." And you've never driven one. Somebody's going to die. That's not that's not good to put people in that kind of responsibility without training. And that's what we get to do. Right, Mark? Right. And the common pattern is that people get promoted because they've got some technical competence. They know about the job, but they don't know about people. They don't know really how to work with people and have the right level of patience and firmness and and the ability to ask those questions we started the, the podcast with. Help me yeah. understand. Help me see this through you know, your perspective. How do those people build enough psychological safety that people will come to them and tell them the truth? Uh, and not not be dancing around or being afraid that they're going to make the boss unhappy by bringing bad news. 
Well, and you just brought up this idea again of perspective and the the mindset, the internal perspective of somebody in in that new role is that they have to have the answer. The technical mm-hmm. competency is required because they're supposed to have the answer. And the fact is, is they you, you talked about this is drawing the answer out of the people that are there is what the leadership is. It's not that they have the answer, but they have to change their mindset, their perspective on what their role is and give them the skills to coach, to ask questions, to listen, to run meetings, to organize things. You've got to give them all those skills. We throw them into these positions and I I feel bad for them because it's not their fault. They don't know how to do it. They're doing the best they can. And, um, but I, I love it in some ways because if everybody was trained, they wouldn't need us, Mark. So, uh, that's what we get to do, you know? So, Talk a little bit today on what you're doing with organizations specifically. What what are some of the things that you're helping organizations to overcome their challenges, their dysfunctions, to be to do that uniting thing, to be united, to achieve better leadership? What what kinds of things are you doing? Well, I want to I want to tie your question directly to my my work with values and decision making. One of the things I'm doing to help organizations uh, that in almost every case they're bringing me in these days is asking them to go back and look at their statement of core values. And I want them to do one of two things. I want them to re-embrace those core values and really talk about how they're making them actionable in their planning, in their promotion, in their evaluation of key employees. Or I want them to uh, take out a, a white piece of paper and say, okay, we have had this, but let's put it aside. How do we build our values architecture from here forward? And we may bring these values over and continue to, to use them, but, but let's challenge ourselves to think about what really we want to define our culture, the way we treat each other, the way we treat the people we serve. And, um, and so I'm helping people with these value statement makeovers. And I, there are three levels to it. Most people keep the big words, you know, fairness, quality, excellence, teamwork, but I really want them to visit the definition and make sure that it's well-defined in, in for the current environment. That's number one. Number two, I like them to come up with a set of a few three to five action principles underneath that definition that answer the question of what does integrity look like? If we're being in integrity, how are we behaving? What, are we, what kinds of things are we doing? And then finally, with some of my clients, some don't have the patience, but if, if they'll work with me, I like them to take one more step and then come up with a set of concrete supporting and attracting behaviors that they know are realistic to happen inside the organization, both the things we want and the things that we know happen sometimes and we want to avoid them and we want to, to get people to stop doing them. Yeah. So, so let's, I'm going to take this just so that we're really clear about what, and you, you tell me if this sounds right. So um, our, our value is uh, we're going to respect each other. Okay. Mm-hmm. The description is, is that we're going to treat others as we want to be treated and, and, uh, really treat each other with respect and, and with, uh, compassion and caring and all that stuff. That's kind of the description of the definition. Mm-hmm. And when I get to the behavior, when I get all the way down to the behavior, it's when I walk into your office and I say, do you have a minute? And you say, yes. You turn from the computer, you stop looking at the computer, you take your fingers off the keyboard, you face me, and you engage my eyes with your eyes. That's the behavior. And if everybody agrees to that, 
now we we can see this uh, this concept being manifested of respect into behaviors. Have I got that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I, I like to drive people down to that very concrete, observable behavior. Sometimes an action principle is still a little general, but when you get down to what happens when I walk in somebody's office, how do they, what's their body language like, what's their attention and patience with me, those kinds of things, then then we're yeah. finally at the level of, of, of people being clear about what's expected and desired. And what's right. not so, won't be tolerated. And what's not, yeah. So here's here's the other side of it. Somebody says, well, do you expect somebody to turn away from the computer every time they're in the middle of something? I says, no. So with respect, they're going to turn to you and say, can you give me five minutes? I really need to finish this. I will come to your office in five minutes and talk to you. And they go, great. And they walk away and you go back to work. So there's you can list different behaviors that become very, very clear and understandable. And now people understand and as I call, I call it front loading. I know exactly what the behavior looks like. So if somebody puts me off for five minutes, I don't feel like they're being disrespectful to me. It's part of the plan. It's part of the agreement, right? I like that phrase front loading. Can I borrow that one? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You're front loading the perspective of the behavior right. and, and understanding what it is. And I do that a lot with my leadership coaching and trying to get people very specific in what you're talking about with values Let's talk about expectations. And people use this word expectations like it's the end all. The We've got a mission. There's an expectation. We've got a vision. There's an expectation. We have values. There's expectations. There's behaviors. There's goals. There's relationship expectations. There are key performance indicators that we're supposed to be getting an expectation around achievement of goals. And people throw this, this word of expectation around all the time. I'm sure you've run into this problem where they say it. They say accountability and they say expectations and they never get enough clarity out of it for people to truly understand what the heck that means. That's right. And we have multiple examples, the famous ones, you know, the Enrons and the Wells Fargo's and the Volkswagens where they had those big words up on walls and in manuals and all kinds of places, but they never made it into the culture of the organization. They were window dressing. And so this exercise to bring the values through a clear definition into action principles and then into specific behaviors, I become more and more convinced is really important if an organization wants to commit to being excellent and healthy. Yeah. So I work with a client. They have 26 fundamentals to your point. They've got their values and everything and 26 fundamentals that are published throughout the whole company every week, one fundamental a week with a description and the expectation is that at the beginning of each of their weekly meetings, somebody says, what's the fundamental of the week? And they'll say integrity. And they'll say, does anybody have a story around integrity? And they have to tell a story or you don't get to start the meeting. So that has become a part of their culture is the mm -hmm. fundamentals. To your point is taking those three behaviors. If I had five values and you had three behaviors in it, I'd have 15 fundamentals mm -hmm. that you could use and reinforce those every week. And I love the fact that what they've done with this because it's created a culture of real consistency. And to your point, character, consistency, and constancy. What have I got? Trust. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Trust is the bottom line. It's the. Yep. So I'm going to ask you my final question. I always ask everybody, Mark. And if you've listened to my podcast, you already know the question. And if you haven't, it'll be a surprise, but I think you'll have the answer. And the question is this if you could write yourself a letter, and send it back to Mark. Let's talk about that lawyer back 
before the epiphany you had with your dad and you're getting out of law school, maybe you've been in the practice for a couple of years. If you could write yourself a letter, what would that letter say? It's so important that you can believe in yourself and trust your inner voice and follow your understanding of what your life needs to be about. Mm. I'm grateful that you had the clarity and the courage to walk out of that hospital and walk away from everything that wasn't working towards an unknown that you believed you would make into something. Wow. Wow. That had to be both somewhat relieving, but a little scary too, right? It was. Everybody thought I was nuts. Yeah. Well, we are, but let's not go there. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> Entrepreneurs, we're all nuts. Yeah. Maybe not uh, DSM-5, but... Uh, right. Yes. But yeah, to just cut the cord like that had to be scary and jump into the abyss. But I... And I'm proud of you and you're a model for other people to consider that and follow your heart and you're doing well and you've done some great things. You've written a couple of books now and, and, and we get to sit here and have a podcast and hope people will listen to it. So it's all good. Life is good. You know, I want to thank you for that last question. And I did not listen to one of all your podcasts all the way. So it put me right in the moment. Yeah. It really did. And I like that what you got was what I had, not anything yeah. that I'd thought about ahead of time and reflected on. And it was very well said. Well, Mark Bennett, thank you so much. We will get information into the show notes so that people can contact you if they're interested in looking up your book or books and finding out more information about you. I will put your LinkedIn connection in the show notes and give them all the information you want them to have so they can get in touch with you. Thanks so much for being our guest today. Thank you. Best wishes to you, Gary. I'm grateful. Thank you, Mark. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thanks for listening to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Take care, be well, and be great. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com, S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S.com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com.